It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 336 for the 31st of March, 2013. This week, magazines continue trying to put themselves out of business. Your private files may actually be public files state government in a digital age, and in short circuits, software that could crash your car. An annoyed spammer nearly takes down the internet, and some good news for readers. On my desk, I have a renewal notice for Time magazine. There are offers from several other magazines, too. And one thing they all seem to have in common is that they were written by people who don't understand pricing. More accurately, perhaps, it seems they were written by people for whom economics is an unknown science. Take time, for example. For $36, or actually $35.88 per year, because they'll bill me $2.99 per month, I can read the magazine online or with the Barnes & Noble Nook Reader. That seems like a pretty good deal at about $0.70 per weekly issue, and the online version has some content the print version doesn't have. Time's website, though, says that I can have a full year of access to the online version of the magazine, and in addition to that, they'll spend the time, materials, and postage required to send me the paper version. So, how much is that? Well, that's $6 per year less than the online-only version. So, Time receives less money and has to pay for paper, ink, printing, and postage to deliver the magazine. But wait, there's more. The little piece of paper on my desk reminds me that the annual cover price, that's what the magazine would cost if I actually drove to a bookstore and bought it every week, is $239.52. But I can have access to the online version. They'll send me the print version, and because they like me so much, they'll even send me a touchscreen thermo clock when I check a special box. The cost? 20 bucks. If the goal of magazine publishers is to migrate readers to online versions so that they can drop the print version eventually and stop paying for all that printing and delivery... This is the wrong way to go about it. I can't tell you how many publications have sent offers for $10 per year subscriptions of paper versions, but they want to charge $30 to $50 a year for the online version. This just doesn't make sense, particularly because many of the magazines that have both paper and electronic versions give print subscribers free access to the online version but they don't offer free print subscriptions to the online subscribers who are actually paying more than the print subscribers who get both for less. See what I mean about not understanding economics? So I guess I'll pay 20 bucks and continue to receive the print version. 
Not to pick on Dooley on time, consider the offer from Bloomberg Businessweek, a welcome-back discount rate of $20 per year, even though I've never been a subscriber. How do you get welcomed back if you've never been there in the first place? It doesn't matter. I can read the magazine on my Windows tablet or any computer that can run the Nook Reader because that's one of dozens of magazines that the library provides access to for free. So that offers in the trash. And Wired has finally expanded its electronic version from Apple only to a variety of readers. Although I qualify for a $10 per year subscription, Wired would charge me $24 for the electronic version only. As long as I keep forcing them to pay for printing and ink and postage to send the magazine to me, I can obtain access to the electronic version for just $10. Now, what does it cost to print and mail a large, full-color magazine such as this 12 times a year? Well, I can guarantee you that it's a lot more than $0.83 per issue, which is what I'll be paying. Inc. offers a test-rate savings form. The form suggests a price of $5 for one year's worth of magazines, $10 for two years, and for three years, also $10. Now, that's not a typo, and I didn't make a mistake in reading it. The price for three years is the same as two, and I can have them bill me later. Now, just sending an invoice has to cost at least a dollar and they'd probably have to send at least two invoices before they realized that I'd actually paid the first one. Oh, and I also get access to the iPad version. Too bad I don't have an iPad. Apparently, Inc. loses money on every deal, but they probably make it up in volume. So just how private are your private files, actually? A report by NetSecurity says that thousands of businesses and individuals who probably believe that the files they've stored on Amazon's S3 servers are secure might find out the hard way that their files are totally in the open. When users sign up for Amazon's S3 servers, they have the option of specifying who has access to the contents. Unless they're set to private, the contents can be viewed by anyone. NetSecurity says it was able to discover more than 12,000 S3 account locations and that more than 15% of them were completely open. These areas are called buckets in Amazon speak. A bucket is public if any user can list the contents of the bucket and private if the bucket's contents can be listed or written only by specific users. NetSecurity says that many users seem not to understand that a public bucket will list all of its files and directories to any user who asks for it. So 15% of 12,000 doesn't seem too bad. But wait, in those nearly 2,000 repositories, some of which are used by large companies, researcher Will Vandervanter found more than 126 billion files, with a B. That's a huge number. 
and it made it impossible for Van de Vander to test the permissions of every single object. So he tried a random sampling, and he was able to review more than 40,000 public files, many of which contained, according to him, sensitive data. To test the openness of the bucket, a user can simply enter the URL in their web browser. A private bucket will respond with, Access Denied. A public bucket will list the first 1,000 objects that have been stored. So, how do you find these URLs? Well, try this for yourself. Amazon uses two formats for its buckets, either s3.amazonaws.com and the bucket name, or bucketname.s3.amazonaws.com. Just replace bucket name with the text of your choice and see what you find. Ventivanter says the files he found included data from a social media service, an auto dealership, and software developers. He found employee lists, vehicle sales records, and program source code. He started with a list of Fortune 1000 companies and 100,000 popular websites. Then he used Bing's search function to find open buckets. Oops. The error cannot be blamed on Amazon because the company defaults all buckets to private. The person who set up the account would have to explicitly change permissions. So maybe there's a lesson here. And if so, the lesson is this. Don't allow amateurs to configure your servers, even when they're in the cloud. Maybe that should be especially if they're in the cloud. You'll find a link to the full report by NetSecurity on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. U.S. states have websites. Some are better than others when it comes to sharing information about how tax dollars are spent. The Federation of State Public Interest Research Groups creates an annual report that reveals how well states are doing. PERG is a nonprofit group. It's also a political lobbying organization that encourages citizen involvement and government openness. The annual report ranks states by grades. A is the best, F is the worst. Because I live in Ohio, I'm kind of interested in my state's ranking, and I found that it's a D-. Perk says that states are getting better, but even those with an A rating could improve. The report says state governments across the country have become more transparent about where public money goes, providing citizens with the information they need to hold elected officials and businesses that receive public funds accountable. Those are the words of Phineas Baxendall, senior analyst for tax and budget policy. As an example of overall improvement, the report notes that, for the first time, all 50 states now provide some checkbook-level government expenditure information online. Three years ago, 
Only 32 states detailed the information on specific payments made to individual vendors. And 39 state websites now include reports about government spending through tax code deductions, exemptions, and credits. That's up from just eight states three years ago. So things are getting better. Seven states earned A grades, and some of these are kind of a surprise. Texas, Massachusetts, Florida, Illinois, Kentucky, Michigan, and Oklahoma. They provide detailed information on different types of payments, usually in searchable, easy-to-use databases. At the other end, five states earned F grades, and some of these are surprising, too. Wyoming, Wisconsin, Hawaii, California, and North Dakota. Their websites are limited in scope, lack comprehensiveness, and are difficult to navigate. Ohio is in a group of seven states that Perg refers to as lagging because they maintain transparency websites, but important pieces are missing, and they fail to provide spending data that are available on most other states' websites. Only one state, says the report, Ohio, provides information on economic development tax credits. And if you think there might be a political bias to the report, well, you'd be wrong. Perg says that spending transparency follows no partisan pattern. On a 100-point scale, the average score of states with Democratic governors differed by less than half a point from states with Republican governors. You'll find the full report on the Perg website, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, crashing software. When an application crashes, it's usually not a real big deal. The program shuts down, and that's pretty much it. Or in a more serious case, the computer itself shuts down. But now, GM is recalling nearly 34,000 new Buicks and Cadillacs to fix transmission software. Who knew transmissions had software? This software has the potential to cause a more serious crash. The cars involved include about 26,000 2013 model year Buick LaCrosse sedans and Cadillac SRX crossover vehicles in the U.S., and another 7,500 or so in China, the Middle East, Canada, and Mexico. GM says a software flaw could cause the transmission to jump out of manual mode and into automatic mode. So far, though, GM says it hasn't received any reports of collisions or injuries related to the problem. There are no parts to change. Instead, the dealers will simply reprogram the transmission control module. The recall was announced a week ago, and notices started going out this week. If you own an affected Cadillac, you can call 1-866-982-2339. And for Buicks, the number is 866-694-6546. You'll find both of those numbers on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Federal Department of Transportation summarizes the recall this way. General Motors is recalling certain model year 2013 Buick LaCrosse vehicles manufactured between April 25, 2012 and March 6, 2013, and model year 2013 Cadillac SRX vehicles manufactured between May 29, 2012 and February 18, 2013 for failing to comply with the requirements of Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards Number 102 transmission shift lever sequence, starter interlock, and transmission braking effect. 
A software problem, the report says, may cause the transmission to inadvertently shift to sport mode, removing any transmission-related engine braking effect. General Motors' number for this recall is 13053. Customers may contact the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's Vehicle Safety Hotline. That's 1-888-327-4236. Or you can go to www.safecar.gov. And all those links and all that information is also on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Am I not a font of information this week? A Dutch hosting company that's headquartered in an old NATO bunker provides services for spammers and, when caught, apparently decided to reach out and touch everyone. Literally. If you notice that your website or websites you use were unreachable starting on March 15th and continuing intermittently for the next 11 days, that's possibly the cause. Cyberbunker is the hosting company that's literally inside an old NATO bunker. When the anti-spam vigilante group Spam House added Cyberbunker's IP addresses to its blacklist, Cyberbunker apparently launched the largest distributed denial-of-service attack that the Internet has ever seen. Then, an organization called Cloudflare that provides worldwide mirroring of sites became involved to help Spam House and was added to the target list. TechBiter uses Cloudflare particularly to provide faster response for readers and listeners who are not in the United States. The distributed denial-of-service attack, which uses hijacked computers to send data to the target's servers, overwhelmed Spamhouse, Cloudflare, and several organizations that provide routing for Internet communications. Spamhouse has been the target of such attacks before, but this one was unusual because of its size and the techniques used. Most distributed denial-of-service attacks use botnets, which are armies of hijacked machines. This time, though, the attack was able to use improperly configured domain name service servers. These are the devices that look up the IP address, such as 108.162.196.114, when people type things like www.techbiter.com. The IP address is what the Internet uses to route words and images from TechBiter to you. Spamhouse is a major player in the fight against spam. Even those of us who understand the organization's motives and applaud its intent often question handing over an important function such as this to what can only be described as vigilantes. Normally, attacks that focus on Spamhouse affect only Spamhouse, but in this case, the spammers retaliated against the Internet as a whole. The most severely affected areas were Europe and Asia, but significant congestion was apparent in the U.S. too. And this attack lasted for 11 days. Apparently, the attack ended after 11 days only because the attacker decided to play nice again. One can understand how it might be difficult for Dutch police to enter a bunker that was once owned by NATO. But couldn't power be shut off? Assuming Cyber Bunker has backup generators, the effect wouldn't be immediate, but the generators would eventually run out of fuel. 
Or perhaps Dutch police could simply locate the point at which fiber cables enter the bunker and cut them. That effect would be immediate. Or maybe Dutch police didn't act because they simply didn't have enough proof. Although Cyberbunker is at the top of just about everybody's list of suspects, the criminals who staged the attack covered their tracks very well. When the attack reached the unprecedented rate of 10 gigabits per second aimed at Spamhouse, the organization called in Cloudflare for help. At that point, the criminals escalated the attack to the point that it finally reached 300 gigabits per second of traffic. Do you read books, magazines, newspapers? In this supposedly post-literate world, a lot of people are reading a lot of words. After all, you're reading the TechBiter Worldwide website or, well, all right, maybe you're listening to the podcast. But even those supposedly helpless and hopeless kids are reading. They're just not doing it while holding books or newspapers. Reading long-form articles on a phone isn't something I would like to do, but I have done it. Tablets are an outstanding choice, and those in their 20s really do read long-form articles on their phones. Maybe you've heard of Goodreads. That's an online service that recommends books for people, much as Netflix recommends videos. Tell Goodreads what you like, and it will tell you about similar types of books. I'm a member, and a client of mine has a book on the service. Well, this week, Amazon acquired Goodreads. I should have seen that coming. Amazon wants to encourage people to read books in Kindle format. You can buy a Kindle if you want, but Amazon really doesn't care because there's no profit in selling Kindles. The profit comes in selling books, and Amazon knows that people who own Kindles tend to buy more books. But you can own a Kindle by installing the free Kindle reader on your PC, Mac, tablet, or phone. So the acquisition makes perfect sense. An online service that helps people find books that they'd like to read is absorbed by an online retailer that provides books. Amazon's vice president for Kindle content, Russ Grandinetti, puts it this way, or perhaps the PR department puts it this way, Amazon and Goodreads share a passion for reinventing reading. Goodreads has helped change how we discover and discuss books, and with Kindle, Amazon has helped expand reading around the world. In addition, both Amazon and Goodreads have helped thousands of authors reach a wider audience and make a better living at their craft. Together, we intend to build many new ways to delight readers and authors alike. Yeah, I think that was probably the PR department. The terms of the acquisition were not disclosed. Subject to various closing conditions, the acquisition is expected to close in the second quarter of 2013. Some acquisitions make sense. Some don't, of course. This one definitely does. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.